Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. This is the word of God. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Please pray with me. Our Father, we uh, come to a very strong and difficult, in many ways, passage from your word this morning. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power, with clarity, with diligence, that we might respond to this warning as you would have us do. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Many of you appreciate these stories of Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund in the great chronicles of Narnia. So much allegory from C.S. Lewis for the Christian. Those who have read to the end of the last battle, the final book, may remember a troubling dialogue about Susan, the older sister, who's nowhere to be found. Peter tells us gravely that his sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. She has no interest in what she called the funny games we used to play when we were children. The only things that interested her now were nylons, lipstick, and invitations. She had outgrown her interest in Narnia. And that was devastating to Peter and the rest. Despite all they had been through together, she was no longer a friend of Narnia. Perhaps you know someone close to you who was a Christian. You considered them a brother or sister in the Lord. They participated with you in the things of God, church, Bible study, even evangelism. But now they're no longer interested in those things. They've turned away from Jesus, his word, and his people. They have removed themselves from the faith. This is called apostasy, and it is devastating. We come today in our study of Hebrews to a warning, a severe warning about this very thing. And it comes on the heels of the passage Alex covered two weeks ago, where, remember, the author exhorts his audience to press on to maturity in the faith, keep moving forward, growing as a Christian. You cannot say in neutral. If you're not growing, you're in grave danger And it is this warning about apostasy and the perseverance of genuine believers that we will consider this morning. I think your outline will be helpful as we follow along. So first, if you could reference that, number one, listen to the warning. Apostasy is irreversible. Let's read these three verses again that Doug read for us. Some of the most chilling words in the New Testament. Verse 4. 
For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. It's not an exaggeration to say that these are the most difficult verses in Hebrews, and many believe the most difficult in the entire New Testament. So, first, I want us to feel the weight of this passage. Many times we, and I do this myself, tend to come across a difficult passage to understand. We wrestle with understanding, getting clarity on what it means, applying the filters and assumptions from other passages. Of of course, that's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. But what can happen if we're not careful is to treat everything intellectually. And like James warns, looking in the mirror and then forgetting right away what we look like. And as soon as we feel we have a good intellectual grasp on the passage, we move on to the next one. And so it does not penetrate our hearts, only our minds. And that's not the way the Bible was meant to be read, is it? We're meant to feel the weight of the words of God for us here. That it might transform us and change our lives, not simply that we come to academic terms with it and then move on. So we want to let the word of God affect us personally and deeply, even when those words make us uncomfortable. Maybe especially when those words make us uncomfortable. So let's examine these uncomfortable words together. Please follow along in your Bible. The author explains here that something is impossible. He uses this word a few other times in Hebrews. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to ultimately take away sins. In this passage, what is impossible is restoring again to repentance the people being described who have fallen away. It's impossible for the people described here to finally be saved. They are beyond hope. Once they're in this situation, eternal judgment is inevitable. And the people described sound like they were Christians. And if they were truly Christians, and not Christians anymore, then on the surface it would appear that they've lost their salvation. So if you didn't before, I'm sure you can now see why this is such an uncomfortable passage. So what is the author saying here? To fall away is called apostasy. I mentioned this earlier. An apostate is someone who once professed to be and lived as a Christian but no longer does. One resource to find it this way. Apostasy is a sustained, committed rejection of Christ and a departure from the Christian community. So these are not just unbelievers he's talking about. There's plenty of unbelievers out there, and they need to hear the gospel. If you're an unbeliever, you need to hear the gospel. These are also not struggling Christians either. Struggling Christians can and do repent and ultimately persevere in the faith. These are people who were once a part of the church and are no longer No longer friends of Narnia, as it were. So let's look exactly how they're described by the author. Starting in verse 4. 
They had once been enlightened. Okay, this most naturally reads as the decisive event of someone's conversion. At some time in the past, their eyes were opened, enlightened, to the truth about Jesus. They've tasted the heavenly gift. This may refer to the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer, or the gift of righteousness imparted by the virtue of Christ, or maybe just the gift of salvation in general. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Okay, being a partaker of the Holy Spirit was the fundamental sign, is a fundamental sign of being a new covenant believer, a Christian. Verse 5. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Throughout the New Testament, we read about the the age to come powers, the end times blessings, breaking through now, breaking in now through what Christ has done, and partaking of that goodness and those powers is what happens to Christians. So, pretty strong descriptions. Now, some faithful commentators argue that these descriptions, while strong, are still less than the description of someone who's truly saved. For instance... They would say about the word enlightened. Yes, they've been enlightened to the truth about God and the gospel, but that's it. That's the, this is not a description of one who's been transformed by it. The word tasted means they nibbled at it, but they didn't swallow it down. It's not describing someone who consumed it fully. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Sure, there's a sense that they benefited from those in the church who had truly received the Holy Spirit, but this is not a description of someone who was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, to be fair, this understanding of these words is possible when you look at the range of meanings. It's possible he's describing an unbeliever, but that is decidedly not the natural reading by any means. In fact, more importantly, it's not the way the writer of Hebrews uses these words. Which should be the first place we look for interpretation. For instance, the word enlightened is only used once in one other place in chapter 10 where the author is clearly describing a believer. The word tasted is also used one other time outside these verses, and it's in chapter 2 where he says, Jesus tasted death for us. Well, Jesus did not just nibble at death, did he? He consumed it fully. So as uncomfortable... As it is, the author seems to be using descriptors that correspond to believers. And when they ultimately reject Christ, it's irreversible. So what is the author saying here? We know from other places in the New Testament that if someone is genuinely a believer, they don't leave the faith. Not because they're so strong that they hold on to God, but because God is strong and holds on to them. He has them in his hand and will not let go, John 10. Once God begins the work of salvation in you, he will complete it, Philippians 1. And those who do leave were never believers to begin with. We see this in John, 1 John 2, which I want to read Slowly, with some comments because it's very relevant to this question. John says this. He's describing people. He says, they went out from us. Okay, so he's describing people they sent out. These were people that were their ministry partners, fellow Christians, so they thought. Okay? Next phrase. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They weren't really Christians. 
Next phrase. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they were truly Christians, they would have persevered in the faith. Next phrase. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Their departure, in other words, their defection from the church community, made plain, made clear, made evident, they weren't Christians after all. So John says, we had people in our Christian community that gave every indication they were believers. By all appearances, every evidence we could see, they were Christians. But the fact that they ultimately left made something clear to us. The fact that they defected and are no longer a part of the church showed us something about them we didn't know. And what it shows us is that despite all appearances, despite all previous experiences we've shared with them, they were never believers. So let's come back to our passage in Hebrews. This is what I think the author is doing in this warning. He's describing these apostates as if they were believers. Because by all appearances, they were. Which is why this warning is so terrifying. They gave every indication they shared these same experiences as us, and yet they fell away. Remember, this this was helpful to me. Remember, the purpose of Hebrews, as we're told in chapter 13 at the end, is exhortation. Okay, the author is exhorting them to hold fast to Jesus. Don't fall away. Keep pressing on to maturity. And the warning he gives them here is serving that end. That they might heed the warning and press on to maturity. So, as Guthrie says, the genre here in, this verse, in these verses is exhortation. The primary purpose of these verses is to motivate to action. The purpose is not primarily to give precise theological instruction. In other words, in order to motivate them to action, he's describing things as they appear to be, not as they actually are. It's like this. It's like me saying to you, let's get up early and watch the beautiful sunrise. Okay, that, that statement is not primarily to teach you about astronomy. Okay, we don't say that because the sun's actually moving. We say it because that's how things appear to be. If someone who has all the appearances of being a believer but ultimately does not persevere, that person will be judged eternally. Jesus illustrated this in the parable of the sower. Some seeds sprouted quickly. Great promise. Who can deny the life of this plant? It's sprouting so quickly, beginning with such excitement and emotion. And other plants that grow up and get tied up in the weeds, temptations, persecutions, they don't persevere. These all looked like promising plants at the start, but ultimately they didn't bear fruit. And that's the important difference. Despite how things looked to others, they weren't believers. By all appearances they were converted, but over time it became clear they were not, in fact, Christians. Think of Judas Iscariot. Okay, three years with Jesus. Heard all his teaching. Consider this. Saw his miracles. Ministered alongside 11 of his closest followers. And when Jesus said at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me. Remember what the other disciples said? They didn't say, I bet it's Judas. We always had a kind of a feeling about him that he wasn't really one of us. No. 
they said, is it me? It was a shocker. Someone who shared all these experiences is them. The fact that people can look this much like believers and yet fall away is shocking. And that's the point the author's making. Examine yourself. That's why this is such a wake-up call for us to press on to Christian maturity. I went to a small K-12 through school in southwestern Minnesota. We only had 13 boys in my graduating class. And throughout grade school and middle school, there were sort of two main groups of boys. One was into sports, and the other was into Star Wars and things like that. And I was sort of the crossover who loved both passionately. My main Star Wars friend and I would reenact lightsaber battles and such. He was not from a Christian home, but professed faith in Christ during our middle school years. And this was really exciting to me, to have our faith in common. We were in Bible studies together. Throughout high school, he was a brilliant thinker from both sides of the brain, both analytical and artistic. I really loved his friendship and fellowship. Well, we both went off to college separately, and he visited me at my school late into my freshman year. And pretty quickly into our conversation, I could tell something was different. He seemed cynical about the Christian college I was attending and the students. It was clear that he had not made any effort to press on to maturity in college. He didn't really pursue a church or any Christian community at all. He'd made some decisions morally that contradicted what he believed and professed during our high school days. That conversation was uncomfortable, and he seemed agitated. I wasn't prepared for that encounter. It caught me off guard and rattled me. It felt like betrayal. How could this happen to my Christian friend? We lost touch for a while. He progressed greatly in academics, getting his Ph.D. in philosophy. The next time I saw him was at a class reunion where he was very friendly. It was clear, though, he was no longer uncomfortable or wrestling with anything. He was very confident and fully convinced of his atheism. He was an apostate. We dialogued a little about ultimate things and afterward exchanged some letters, but he was more than prepared for any argument I could make. Since then, this is amazing, he's gone on to debate some famous Christian philosophers on university campuses about the existence of God. He has twice debated one of the best, in my opinion, William Lane Craig. It was surreal watching online the guy I played Star Wars and studied the Bible with speak with such cold conviction against the faith he once held. And one of the reasons my friend's a good debater on these subjects is he's not only that he's brilliant, but he's been on the inside. He's seen and heard it all. He was a part of our Christian community. He had every appearance of a believer. He had the same loves, same convictions, many of the same experiences as me. He had all those things and ultimately has said none of it's true. He experienced all these blessings and ultimately gave God the stiff arm. He understands the gospel and what's being claimed about Jesus. He once believed it, lived it, promoted it, and now he concludes that Jesus died for nothing. He's crucifying once again the Son of God 
holding him up to contempt, and there's no going back. No hope at the last judgment. What a terrifying thing. When the author says here it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, it doesn't mean that they want to repent, but they can't. It doesn't mean they want to be forgiven by God, but God won't do it. No, anyone who wants to repent, God welcomes. Any unbeliever may reject the gospel many times, but then later repent and accept it. That's not what this is. Someone else may have been exposed to a false gospel or a perverted gospel, lived in a false community of faith and rejected that, or had a false understanding of the gospel and rejected it. Such people also can and do come to the true gospel and repent. That's also not what this is. The impossibility means there's no desire to repent. These are people who have already experienced true gospel community. People have been a part of genuine Christianity. They had full knowledge of all the terms of repentance and forgiveness found in the gospel. They understood and once reveled in this truth about Jesus, and then ultimately they rejected it. No longer a friend of Narnia. That's apostasy. Michael Kruger has a helpful analogy to understand why apostasy is different than just unbelief or rejecting the gospel. Imagine hearing a story on the news about a young man who murdered an elderly couple. He broke into their home and killed them both in cold blood. What a horrible crime. What if you found out that young man was their son? That's a different level of tragedy, isn't it? I mean, this man who had been raised and nurtured by this couple had experienced blessing upon blessing under their roof, and then he turns on them and does this. There's nothing new he could learn about them at that point that would change his disposition toward them. He knows them intimately. Yet despite all that knowledge, experience, and blessing, this is where he ultimately arrived in their relationship. This is why apostasy is so heinous and why it is the case once someone goes down that road, it's over. There's no other way to be forgiven. The only way has been tried and rejected. There's no new information or new understanding or new anything that can happen to reignite him to the truth he's so definitively rejected. Like we read in Romans 1, there comes a point where God hands people over to their sin. He removes his restraining influence. And that's why responding to this warning is so urgent, because at some point, it can be too late. Let's look at number two in your outline. Respond to the warning, fruits of repentance. Let me read, please follow in your own Bible, verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. These two verses illustrate, excuse me, two different responses to the warning. The rain is a blessing and it falls on the land. 
Okay. The, the land either receives the rain to produce a crop and is blessed by God, or the land bears thorns and thistles, in which case the land is cursed and will be burned in the end. This is clearly a metaphor of the final judgment. Okay. The rain is a blessing from God in the warning. The rain goes over the whole land. Okay, just like the warning goes out to his entire audience and goes out to us, all of us this morning. There's a phase for the audience of Hebrews where they're listening. But if they turn away, that phase will end and they won't be in a position of listening anymore. There are consequences of squandering the rain and not producing fruit. There are consequences of not listening to the warning and falling away. You've disqualified yourself and will be judged instead of saved. Ultimately, that consequence is the curse of God for eternity. If, on the other hand, you're refreshed by the rain, you listen to the warning, and take advantage of God's blessing as it was intended, you produce fruits of repentance, evidence you've heeded the warning, and you press on to maturity, you're blessed. Which brings us to number three. Persevere in the warning. Assurance for the faithful. Let's read verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. We can see the author is very pastoral here. He's just leveled a severe warning, and now he's very encouraging, isn't he? It's interesting, during the, the warning in verses 4 through 8, he switches to the third person, speaking about the apostates as someone else. And now... In verse 9, he switches back to we, you, your. Okay, I've said some harsh but true things about judgment for those who do not heed the warning. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things belonging to salvation. There are reasons for assurance in your case. Remember, he's writing to a mixed group of people. Only God can see the heart. So like any good pastor... He wants to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. He wants to afflict those who are drifting, not pressing on to maturity, with a strong warning about the danger of apostasy, but then also quickly comfort those who may be afflicted with discouragements and fear. People who have every reason to be encouraged in their walk with the Lord. And notice why he feels sure. Their work their obedience, their love for God's name and affection for God. They, they don't just believe, they genuinely love Jesus. They adore him. Their love for his name is translated into serving one another in the church. This is the fruit of a genuine believer. God's reign is bearing fruit in their land and the author can see it. So he encourages, then exhorts them to show the same earnestness, diligence, hard work to press on to more maturity to the end. So both this warning and his encouragement help the believer to press on to maturity, which is the goal of the author's exhortation. Coaster says this, 
The warning disturbs, while the promise gives assurance. But they both serve the same end, which is that the listeners might persevere in the faith. Like the author of Hebrews, I cannot see your hearts. Only God can. Some of you need to be afflicted with this truth that you cannot continue in unrepentant sin. You cannot dabble with idols and other affections pulling you away. You need to know that just because someone has a promising beginning to the Christian life and Christian-like experiences in the past does not mean you're a genuine believer. Or perhaps you're sort of in neutral gear regarding Jesus, spending more time on hobbies or other things and not pressing on in the faith, showing earnestness in your walk. You need to be afflicted this morning with this warning. You need to press forward to maturity. Others of you, however, are afflicted with doubts, with discouragements. You need to be comforted. You need to be encouraged with the fruit you do see in your life and the growth you have experienced and the ways you are serving. That's the Holy Spirit. Thank Him for it and press on earnestly for more. You need assurance by what the Lord's doing in your life. Perhaps you need to hear the words. I love these words from John Newton who said this. I'm not what I wa- <laughs> I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. All right, let's consider number 4 some application. Heed the warning. Regardless of who you are in your spiritual state as you listen to this, there's something relevant in this warning for you. First, letter A, salvation is found only in Jesus. If you're not a believer this morning, if this is all new to you, you need to hear this. There's one way to be saved. And there's one way to have your sins forgiven. And it doesn't matter what those sins are. He will have you. You can be restored to a relationship with God, your creator. He's provided a way for you to have eternal life and eternal fellowship with him and all the blessings he has for you. And that way is Jesus. He's the only way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So turn away from sin. Turn away from yourself. Don't turn to your own efforts to improve. Don't turn somewhere else. Because there's no other way, and there doesn't need to be, because he's more than enough. And I would love nothing more than to talk to you afterward if you would like to. Letter B. False believers, apostates, do not finally repent or persevere. We've considered repeatedly this this morning, there are those who were so much a part of the gospel community, had every outward indicator they were believers, but ultimately reject Jesus. They've become so inoculated to the truth, it no longer affects them. And it's impossible for such a person to be restored to repentance. Now, I want to think for a minute about how this happens. Apostasy can come in in multiple ways. And it's not just intellectual doubts about the truth of the Bible, which is what we most often probably hear in the media and things like that. Someone convinced out of the faith by academic argument. I don't think that's normally how it happens. I'll use my friend as an example. 
Despite his brilliant intellect, it was not first intellectual doubt that started him down this path. It was moral doubt. My friend reasoned, as many do, why should I deny myself the pleasures of sin? Moral doubt leads to immorality, which feeds on itself, and if unrepentant, leads to intellectual doubt. 1 Timothy 4, Paul speaks to this. Those who have departed from the faith, apostates, whose consciences are seared, okay? They've morally gone through the stop sign so many times they stop believing it's wrong. At that point, it's too hard. Easier to change my belief than to change my morality, which then leads to a conflict with the authority of God's word over my life which then leads to intellectual doubt about the truth of the whole thing. In my experience, that's the typical path. Another illustration of this, years ago, Philip Yancey wrote an article about a conversation with a friend of his. This man was a professing Christian with a wife and three kids. He confided into, with Yancey that he was leaving his wife of 15 years for another woman, someone with whom he'd had an immoral relationship. He seemed to grasp the consequences and devastation this would have on his family. Yet he felt the force of this woman was too strong to resist. And then came the bombshell question, as Yancey describes it. He said, do you think God can forgive something as awful as I'm about to do? As you can imagine, Yancey was dumbfounded. But he basically said this. Can God forgive? Of course, read your Bible. The church is built on the backs of forgiven people. But when we sin deliberately against God, our relationship with him changes. We distance ourselves from him, and there's no guarantee we will come back. And he told them, basically, my concern is not whether God can forgive, but whether you will want his forgiveness, especially since it would involve repentance from sin. Yancey wrote that in the following months and years, the man showed no sign of repentance, and sure enough, he began to distance himself from his Christian friends, explaining they were too narrow-minded. Have you heard that before? And that God was not really a part of his life anymore. Forgiveness is a gift from God that comes through the work of Jesus Christ received by repentance and trust in him. And if we squander his mercy and do not heed the warnings, you start down a path where repentance and forgiveness are no longer important to you and there's no going back. So today, our primary temptation may be, why should I deny myself the pleasures of sin? It would be so much easier just to do what I want. For the audience of Hebrews, it may have been primarily, why should we deny ourselves the comfort and safety we could enjoy? It would be so much easier just to go back to Judaism and avoid this persecution. Either way, that's the conflict. Let me remind you again that our theme this year is not Jesus is easier. No, Jesus is better. And that's what the author is saying too. Remember this warning is part of the exhortation to press on to maturity. Now I have two cautions I, I want to mention about this truth, about the impossibility to be restored to repentance. One caution, 
as it relates to other people and one as it relates to ourselves. First, note that I said the apostate does not finally repent. Okay, we need to be very careful, brothers and sisters, not to jump to conclusions about other people or be too quick to categorize the unrepentant as apostate. We cannot see someone else's heart. They may be just a struggling Christian. That's what we pray for repentance. A Christian who may go astray and then does repent and find mercy. God always welcomes the repentant. As Spurgeon said, there's a great difference between falling and falling away. There are even those who go through all the painful steps of church discipline pleading from the whole congregation to repent and still refuse and are removed from the fellowship and considered as an unbeliever, as Matthew 18 tells us to do, our goal, even in that final step, is always restoration. That's what we pray for, their repentance. And in some cases, by God's grace, even after time has elapsed, can lead to someone's repentance. So let's never shortchange the wideness of of God's mercy. The second caution is a pastoral one regarding ourselves. I've known Christians in the past who were scared to death that they had committed apostasy. And maybe they thought they reached a place, they thought, where maybe the Lord would not forgive them. Now listen, this is really important. If you're laboring over your guilt about something you've done and are concerned about whether God can forgive you, he can and he will. Okay? Your, your deep concern is the very evidence you need. You're not an apostate. Apostate doesn't concern himself at all with repentance or God's forgiveness. I guarantee my friend from high school is not concerned in the least about God's forgiveness or about God at all. A repentant heart is always welcomed by God. But don't miss the main point here. Please don't waste this opportunity. Heed the warning and repent now while you can. This brings us to letter C. True believers persevere by the means of God's warnings. Here's the beauty of God's perseverance of the saints as it relates to the scripture. For genuine believers, the warning is always effective. Okay, because God perseveres his own through the warnings. That's, how, that's what he uses the warnings for. Some might say, hey, if you can't lose your salvation, what's the point of the warning? Here's the point. The warnings are the means God uses to secure his own. What's, what's the best way to keep someone from going off the cliff? It's to warn them not to go off the cliff. The warning is the means to keep them from doing it. And those who are his will his will listen to the warnings and continue to bear fruit of repentance. When the rain falls on that land, it produces a crop. So God's warnings, not just in this chapter. This is helpful for, for our Bible reading in general. Not just in this chapter, not just warnings in Hebrews, but throughout the Scriptures. When you read warnings in your Bible, don't skip over them as if they're meant for someone else. Take it to heart Use it as an opportunity to confess to the Lord and repent. Ask his forgiveness for whatever it is. It's God's means to sanctify you and keep you and protect you from his judgment. If anything is clear from this passage, it's that God's judgment is real and it is certain. So let's seize this opportunity and repent, ask for forgiveness, 
and cleansing. Let's not continue on a path as a Christian infant or juvenile and stay in neutral gear. Let's press on with earnestness, verse 11, to maturity as true believers. Finally, letter D, find assurance in your love, service, and faithfulness. The author says he feels sure of better things in their case. Now, he's not omniscient, so why does he feel sure about their salvation? Well, it's because he sees the fruit. Verse 10, he sees their work, their love they've shown for God's name in serving the saints. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I feel sure about better things for you because you made a decision to accept Christ a few years ago. Or you raised your hand at Bible camp. We're not saved by a profession of faith, but by possession of faith. And that possession of faith is demonstrated by obedience and a changed life and by constant repentance and by love for God and for his people. He also doesn't say he feels sure about them because they're really gifted. He doesn't say, hey, I've seen you do signs and wonders, therefore I feel sure about you. No. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day. Many. This is insane. It's hard to believe. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty wonders in your name? And he will say to many, I never knew you. Depart from me, you wicked person. You had no relationship with me because you didn't obey me. So assurance doesn't come from words or supernatural experiences or gifting. It comes from love and obedience in the present. It comes from heeding warnings and pressing on to maturity. True faith perseveres in earnestness, verse 11. Hard work. True faith finishes the race. I think of our beloved sister, Star Grunewald, her last day on this earth yesterday. Serving in Awana, a matter of days before being in hospice care. Talk about finishing strong. What a great example of exactly what he's talking about here. Working earnestly, serving us and our kids to the very end. Finishing strong, loving the church because she loved the name. This gives assurance. First John speaks to this. We know we have passed, we have assurance that we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Okay. Loving our brothers and sisters, serving them, wanting to be with them. The author says, this is why I feel sure of better things belonging to salvation in your case. Because I can see your love demonstrated in serving the saints. Now, know this. Your service does not go unnoticed. Okay, you, you may get tired. We all do. You may think, hey, no one notices. Listen carefully. God does. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. For star, imagine it right now. And one day soon for us, brothers and sisters, this will be realized in a most dramatic way. When you hear the master say to you, well done, good and faithful Servant. I close with Max Lucado speaking of our homecoming. He says, You may not have noticed it, but you're closer to home than ever before. Each moment is a step taken, each breath 
as a page turned. Each day a mile marked, a mountain climbed. You're closer to home than you've ever been. Before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come. You'll descend the ramp and enter the city. You'll see faces that are waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. He does not overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints. So let's press on, brothers and sisters, with all earnestness and maturity to the end and hold fast to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you this morning for these very strong words, words of intense warning and words of intense promise. May we heed these words and press on. May we repent of things that are holding us back. We all have them. Holding us back from maturity, holding us back from growth. May we turn from those things, heed the warning, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, press on in our love for you and our love and service for your people. For the glory of Jesus' name, to our last day on this earth. Amen.